but I do think that once we get to a point where the number one song on the Hot 100 for Billboard is an Arabic song, I think that's the goal. And I think we can get there, which I never thought I could say in my lifetime. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. The internet has made music even more global, allowing artists, producers, and audiences to cross borders with just the keystroke. This is especially true in the Arab world, where musicians can draw inspiration from national, regional, and international trends to invent something that finds national, regional, and international audiences. This week on Babel, I speak with music journalist Dene Hajar about the changing Arab music scene. We talk about the rise of Arab hip-hop, how increasing connectivity is influencing how Arab artists produce and distribute music, and what the next big thing will be. Then I continue the conversation with Natasha Hall and Leah Hickert, and we discuss soft power, censorship, and music. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Danny Hajar is a Lebanese-American music journalist and curator of the weekly newsletter Sa'aluni Anas, which highlights music and culture from the Middle East and North Africa. He's been published in leading news outlets, and he worked at Spotify. Danny, welcome to Babel. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm really excited to be here. So it's remarkable. You can be a music journalist remotely. I guess everybody can do every job in the music business remotely. How does that affect the way people make and consume music? I think what's great about music now, especially with music accessibility, is that you can kind of do anything anywhere. And so you have a lot of artists, producers, creatives who have sophisticated software at their homes. They're able to record and share files very easily. So the ease of which you're able to do those things and the quickness with which you're able to do those things creates a lot more opportunity. You know, you no longer have to necessarily travel to LA or London or what have you to a certain studio to record with a certain artist. If an artist is based in Los Angeles and wants to collaborate with an artist based in, you know, Tunis, Tunisia, they could do that fairly quickly now. And do they? Um, Are you seeing those cross-border collaborations? Absolutely. You see that quite a bit, particularly within certain communities. For me, the greatest example really is within the Sudanese hip-hop community. I didn't realize there was a Sudanese hip-hop community. Oh, yeah. And they're really cool. They're really, really awesome. People like Too Dope and Maz Mars, they're really great along with a few others. But, you know, Nadina Ruby is a great example. She's based in Boston and she collaborates with folks who are based either in Sudan or in Cairo and they have tracks together. So you're seeing a lot of that happening within the scene and just an effort to kind of bridge those geographical divides. And then how do people get music? I mean, you can get all the Middle Eastern music you want sitting in Washington, D.C. How are people getting music and how are artists being compensated for their music if so much is online? The compensation, it's going to be dependent on whichever streaming platform folks are listening to. They all have their own sort of models. But essentially with consumption, it's, you know, like I mentioned, kind of a digital service provider or a DSP. So those are your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your titles. If you're in the Middle East, there's one in Miami that's very popular for Arabic music. There are artists that are still recording things on CDs and cassettes, which is how some of us grew up and like to listen to music. So that is also another way. 
The other big one I would say that's really kind of helped with some of the emerging Arab music scene, you know, notoriety and everything is TikTok actually, which has been really interesting to kind of watch. A lot of artists are recording their short form videos or sharing snippets of songs on TikTok. And, you know, it's gotten popularity with folks who even don't necessarily speak Arabic. But just love the vibe and appreciate the vibe. So it's across different things. And it strikes me that there was a time when, for instance, Paul Simon went to South Africa, came up with a concept in the music for Graceland in 1986, Rhythm of the Saints in 1990 when he went to Brazil. But now you can sit in your living room and get access to all of it. Are you seeing that sort of hybridity coming into our music in a very different way than it used to? The emerging scene, what's really cool about it is they're taking other genres that aren't necessarily native to the region, but they're making it their own. So you're seeing the rise of kind of Arab hip hop where they're taking things that are from Brooklyn or from LA or even from the UK and they're making it their own. They're adding sort of their own Arab flair to it. What um, does that mean? So it's either kind of in the production itself where they'll add certain instruments, they'll use certain scales that are very similar to traditional Arabic music, for example, but, you know, create it their own way. But obviously also just in the rhyme scheme, a lot of it is in Arabic. They're mixing languages, Arabic and English and French and Spanish, like a lot of different things together. They're using very colloquial terms, obviously. I would credit Egyptians in particular for that. They're very good at this. Moroccans are using Afrobeats and they're doing Afrobeats in Arabic. So if you like Burna Boy, imagine him in Arabic. There's a lot of, there are a lot of artists that are doing things like that. They're adding some of their own beat patterns to it that are very Moroccan specific. Drill right now from the UK is also a big one for a lot of rappers in Egypt and even in Iraq and kind of across the scene more broadly. You know, Saudi Arabia recently signed an agreement with the person sort of credited for creating K-pop. And he is now under contract with Saudi to create S-pop and essentially duplicate that model for Saudi artists. Reggaeton, I think, is just a genre that no one can ever escape. And so you will see some artists, particularly from North Africa, who will try to dabble in that. But I've heard Algerians combine rye and bachata. Never thought that that would be a thing, but it works really well. You know, I've heard heavy metal in Lebanon. You're seeing Gulf artists use very native sort of Khaliji tempo structures and beat structures and rapping over it. So it's kind of a combination of a lot of different things in music. And I know I talked a lot about hip hop here, but that obviously that extends to a lot of different genres, you know, in Lebanon and in Jordan and in Palestine. You'll see that with electronic music, for example, and a lot of indie music, which is really cool. So there's definitely influences from all over. But again, they're adding their own spin to it. They're adding their own flair to it. That is both maintaining the credibility of the genre and maintaining pride in their own identities. And what's the role of traditional music? Do you feel that the traditional music has a different role in the evolution of Arab music than it does in a place like Africa, Europe, Asia? 
Traditional Arabic music still permeates the culture. It's hard to ever ignore or ever dismiss, you know, the Feiruzes, the Umm Kalsums, the Abdul Halims of the world. They're still very much influential. I would say the closest derivative of that continues to be Arab pop. I mean, Arab pop still remains dominant throughout the region. The Nancy Ajrams of the world, the Walik Furis, you know, those folks still remain very dominant. Amr Diab. But now what you're starting to see is some Arab hip-hop artists, for example, they're sampling. They're sampling old songs, remaking it, making a rap beat out of it, a trap beat, a drill beat, whatever, and adding kind of their own flair to it, which is really interesting. There's an artist like Eliana, for example, who has done different covers of very traditional or classic Arabic songs like Ahwaq by Abdul Halim. She has a very beautiful piano rendition of that song. So, you know, you're seeing stuff like that, which is really interesting. I think there is a great respect for the people that came before this current generation within the Arab music scene. There's a great respect for those artists and kind of who they are and what they stood for and their ability to create music and what they meant to the people, ultimately. So there is that respect that's still there, in my opinion. How have lyrics changed? I mean, I don't think of Feruz or even Okalsum, while she was used politically, she didn't sing about political things. Do politics and social commentary play a different role in Arab music now than it did 15, 20, 30 years ago as it moves away from state production toward independent production? I don't know that if it plays a different role. I think it just plays a larger role in general in the sense of, you know, to your point, artists, I think, have a little bit more creative freedom or have a little bit more creative agency to express opinions differently. Obviously, that being said, there are certain places where that's just not going to be the case. And they could put themselves in serious trouble with respective governments, for example, if they say certain things. But, you know, currently with what's going on in Gaza, a lot of artists, for example, are using their platforms on social media to highlight what's going on with Palestinian civilians in Gaza. There are artists that are creating music, expressing their solidarity with the Palestinian cause. You're seeing a lot more artists being outspoken in that way. In the same token, you'll see some artists, depending on what country, express support for different political parties, for different leaders. That continues to kind of happen. And that has been a tradition kind of Arabic music for a while. I mean, similarly, in a lot of respects to American music, I'm thinking particularly, you know, after 9-11, there were so many artists, particularly in the country music, who had very overtly political music. Some of it was very anti-Arab even and Islamophobic, but a lot of them were very much pro-America and all these sorts of things. You know, that kind of comparison is interesting to kind of see that. So you have a lot of artists that are also expressing their politics and their music. And I would personally argue that Palestinian rappers are kind of the standard bearers, in my opinion, of protest music. Simply because they contend with the occupation on a day-to-day -day basis. And so a lot of them are using rap as a way to overtly discuss kind of the occupation or the plight of Palestinians, kind of what's happening 
in their own lives on a day to day basis, and they tend to do that fairly consistently. That's not necessarily the case, for example, with Moroccan artists who, despite high youth unemployment and the protests that happened in Morocco last year, not a lot of Moroccan artists necessarily are creating music to discuss that in the same way that Palestinian artists would to discuss the occupation. So it really is country dependent and community dependent. So that's sort of the politics side. Do you see a social commentary side that's different? I mean, not so much to try to create political change, but to talk about the plight of being a young person, about unemployment, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly, I know I keep coming back to hip hop. You do keep coming back to hip hop, Danny. I do. I do. I mean, that's my favorite genre, I'll be honest. But particularly with hip hop, given that it is a genre of protest and it is a genre of social commentary, it's the same in the Middle East and North Africa. You know, you have a lot of Egyptian rappers who are talking about kind of what it was like to grow up in underserved communities in Alexandria. You have, you know, artists in Tunisia kind of discussing similar situations in Iraq. So there is a lot of social commentary. Do you think there's something unique about the way people use social commentary in Arab hip hop that's different from American forms or other forms? I think what's unique, frankly, is that it's becoming more and more overt now in a region where that wasn't always the case. You didn't always talk about the taboos out loud. And now, for example, in Egypt, you have a whole genre built on taboos in Mahraganet. So Mahraganet is a genre of music that is highly Egyptian. Depending on who you ask, it either started in Cairo or it started in Alexandria. It's kind of based on low production tech, very sort of edgy beat patterns, synth patterns, and lyrics that are very explicit, just very much discussing taboos out loud. It's gained a lot of popularity, despite what the Egyptian government has tried to do over and over again, which has banned a lot of Mahraganet artists from performing in Egypt, try to ban the genre altogether. It still enjoys quite a bit of popularity both within the country and certainly outside of Egypt. Hassan Shakush, who is kind of the poster child, I would argue, with Mahraganet, he performed in New York and a couple of other places last year. And some of them have a very strong social media presence. Hamubika is one who has a very strong TikTok presence. So who's producing this music? Where are they producing it? If you had an idea that you wanted to be an artist, where would you be based? In your own home, which is really cool. A lot of these artists are producing their own music. They're mixing and mastering their own music. They're writing their own lyrics. They're uploading it and they're releasing it. A lot of these artists are independent. Not a lot of artists are with the major labels. Only a handful, I think, really are. There are some artists that are with smaller local labels, but a good majority of them are independent. And so they're doing everything kind of on their own time and in their own way, which is really kind of fascinating to watch. Are there a lot of artists who produce things at home and then also have concerts or can travel around the region with concerts? What's the line between online streaming of music and being paid to perform music. A lot of these artists definitely try to perform live wherever they are. So 
you know, you do see a few, a few of these artists performing either within their own kind of home countries or communities. They're either traveling very regionally. So, you know, you may have Moroccan artists who are traveling to Tunisia or Egypt or even to Europe, frankly, where a lot of Moroccan artists enjoy quite a bit of popularity. Um, Among a large Moroccan expatriate community. Absolutely. I mean, for Moroccans and for Algerian artists, particularly, yes, their audience is kind of the rest of North Africa. But I would argue that a good chunk of their audience and probably their primary audience, really, are not just the diaspora in Europe, but really just Europeans in general, because those artists are also performing in French or Spanish and Italian, and that can resonate with a lot of different communities in Europe, and they enjoy quite a bit of success there. A lot of artists right now are being tapped to perform in Saudi Arabia or the UAE, because right now those two places are kind of driving a lot of the different cultural sort of output with different festivals and concerts and very big sort of lavish events around music. So a lot of those artists are also finding ways to perform there and but they're able to kind of travel and perform. And I think they love that. I think they prefer doing that too. Do people understand the lyrics? I mean, one of the things I've always heard from all my Arab friends is everybody understands Egyptian Arabic because of music and film, because so much of, of cultural production was Egyptian for many years. But now you're talking about Moroccans, Algerians, two dialects that a lot of people find difficult. You're talking about the Gulf, another set of dialects. Do you find that people actually do understand, that people are more able to understand the lyrics, or do people not really care about the lyrics? I mean, I'm sure it's a mix of both. You know, I would make the argument that not everybody understands Bad Bunny, but he is consistently the most listened to artist globally almost every year, except for this year, he was beat by Taylor Swift, which was something but that hurts you know what that does hurt i mean well i don't know i personally like taylor swift i'll admit that but you know not everyone speaks spanish not everyone understands kind of the slang even that bad bunny is using in his lyrics but something about his music really resonates with people you you catch a vibe kind of with what he's saying or what he's performing and i and i think it's similar to moroccan artists or saudi artists who are doing the same thing you know you may not pick up on every single thing within the dialect but you feel something, you can feel the emotion, you can feel the energy that an artist is kind of putting out there. So there is something there. And I think that's what makes music so beautiful. So if you can make music from anywhere, are there Arabs in the United States and Europe who are making meaningful music for folks back home? Absolutely. There is a growing diaspora contingent of Arab artists who are kind of representing the third culture kids, right? So they're kind of representing the fact that they have a foot in one land and a foot in another land and merging everything together. So you have a lot of artists like Lana Lubani, who is Palestinian American. She mixes English and Arabic together. Which is how a lot of children of immigrants in these communities grew up speaking. So that is something that is certainly taking off. You know, artists like Faluka, who's based in New York and she's Egyptian, you know, she does the same sort of thing. Artists like Temtem, who is Saudi, same sort of thing. Eliana, I think, is one that's that's pretty interesting because she is someone who is performing primarily in Arabic, but she's based out of L.A. 
So, you know, things like that also you'll see. But, you know, at the same time, you also see artists who are Arab, but aren't performing in Arabic. And they just happen to be Arab and they want to be able to perform any kind of music without having that identity sort of, in their view, limit them. So someone like Anise, for example, who has completely blown up as an artist, he's doing incredibly well. He's got millions of streamers each month, you know, performed on Jimmy Kimmel and all this sort of stuff. You know, he's Palestinian. I mean, he'll talk about being Palestinian and he's very proud to be Palestinian, but it's not something that you'll necessarily see in his music. Oh my baby, baby, you're my sun and moon. His music is very separate kind of from that. And we need all of that. I think all of those kinds of artists are important. We need everybody representing themselves in their own way because they're all different pieces to the larger puzzle of this emerging scene. Do you sense that this degree of hybridity, the cosmopolitanness, of the music scene and the intra-regional exchange in music is changing Arab culture in a real way? I think what's happening is you're now seeing more and more formalized musical processes take shape in the region. And what I mean by that is you're starting to see an industry that is larger than just one record label or two record labels like it was, you know, decades ago, you're seeing more labels sort of pop up, which is creating, you know, proper A&R across the region and it's creating, you know, proper sort of channels for production and licensing and creativity. You're seeing things like Soul DXB in Dubai that's kind of marrying culture and music together. I would say it's similar to ComplexCon in the US where you're bringing all these different communities together, artistic communities, music communities, cultural communities. You're seeing something like XP in Saudi Arabia, which is a huge, massive music conference that takes place every year over the course of three days that, you know, anybody who's anybody in, in the air music industry is there. It's, I would say it's akin to South by Southwest at this point. It's on that level. And not so, so long ago, Saudi Arabia banned public performances of music. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's opened up now. It's very different now where you're seeing big music festivals taking place and they're getting major artists like Calvin Harris or Travis Scott. So these sorts of things are changing very quickly and there's a much more formalization and recognition of music as an industry that is beyond just sort of the Arab pop world. And I think that's really important and really cool to see. What do you think the next surprising thing in this space is going to be? The goal that any Arab artist that I've talked to and any Arab creative or producer that I've talked to or label exec has said that what's happened with Latin music and what's happened with reggaeton and what's happened with K-pop, that's the goal. That's the goal for Arabic music. I still think we're years away from that, but we're starting to see the foundation be built. But I do think that once we get to a point where the number one song on the Hot 100 for Billboard is an Arabic song, I think that's the goal. And... I think we can get there, which I never thought I could say in my lifetime, but I think we could get there. Danny Hajar, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much, John. Danny mentioned that Arab governments have tried, albeit unsuccessfully, to restrict what some musicians have discussed in their lyrics. Why are regimes in the region so concerned with censoring emerging genres like Arabic hip-hop? I think the regimes are generally concerned with social and political movements that they're not deeply plugged into, that they don't control, this 
goes back a long way. But music has a way of both spreading messages and, and enlisting people. We've seen a history of people passing cassettes from person to person. And now that you can do so much just with sharing files, I think most governments in the region feel that the danger of social and political messages that they're not aligned with is a problem. Certainly, they want music as a pressure release valve, but they don't want it creating pressure on them. Yeah, at one point in time, it was easier to control. So you had the likes of Um Kulthum and Abdul Halim Hafiz basically being used by the Egyptian government in many cases, sometimes for overtly political songs, like when Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal to pay for the S1 dam. Abdul Halim Hafiz literally wrote a song about the dam itself and how it was sort of overcoming colonialism. And I think to John's point, in the modern world, much like news, music is able to be shared instantaneously with others. And it's much harder to monitor. So, you know, you have that across country lines, but also across regions where you have like Shad Yamansur of Palestinian rappers first single featuring Dead Prez, who's another sort of socially conscious rapper in the United States. Though I don't know how new that is. You did have a lot of interaction between jazz musicians, for example, during the Cold War that came to Turkey, that came to Morocco and other areas. And there was kind of an anti-colonialist message that was sort of shared between them as well. And so I think you see that to the present day where you see hip hop enthusiasts and artists, you know, going to the Bronx, like the Mecca of hip hop, because there is this kind of rebellious current that runs through it. And it's really difficult, I think, for states to understand it and fully control it when it's transnational like that. I mean, in many ways, music has always had a social element to it. We saw it with the folk music movement in the 1950s. Rock and roll was rebellious. In many ways, these mainstream music genres became mainstream as they became more commercial. In some ways, and this is one of the interesting things that came up in the discussion, it's not really clear what the economic model behind a lot of these musicians always is, but you can understand the way the social and political message of rap, of hip hop, can transcend boundaries. And not only between the United States and the Arab world, but within the Arab world. And that's something that a lot of regional governments are thinking twice about. As I said, in many ways, they want to encourage it within boundaries. And it's fascinating that two of the governments that are most aggressive about policing the social space in media, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, have become a center of production of this new Arabic music. As you both mentioned, there's this component of foreign influence. Increasingly, we're seeing Western music is influencing Arabic music and vice versa. To what extent is American music and media more broadly a type of soft power? So, I mean, this is interesting because it goes back to our original point. Hisham Aidi has this excellent book called Rebel Music, which I would highly recommend for anyone who's sort of interested in this topic. But he talks a lot about jazz diplomacy. So during the Cold War, the U.S. actually tried to use jazz music as a form of diplomacy, sending musicians over to the Middle East. This was a very constructive effort, but what was interesting is what happened on the ground in the meantime, right? And that was the sort of political bonds that were formed. 
in addition to the music. And the music was, I mean, pretty amazing. I mean, Brubeck, the famous jazz musician, wrote quite famous songs inspired by his trips to Turkey. But then these political ties that I think the U.S. was not necessarily promoting ended up happening as well. And so a lot of these musicians ended up staying in Turkey, ended up staying in Morocco. And you saw artists and writers like James Baldwin staying in the Middle East. And there was this certain tie during that period, during the Vietnam War. And again, it was one of these things that they couldn't control, though. And so it is a form of soft power. Because for many around the world, they do look to American music or the fusion of American music for inspiration. And I think American musicians also look to others for inspiration. And you see that with hip hop artists in the United States constantly sampling old Arabic music, new Arabic music. So I think that there is that unofficial diplomacy that happens because even when you have the breakdown of political understanding or in foreign policy, the music remains. And I've seen this with Jewish and Arab musicians as well. I've seen it with the unfortunate exile of a lot of people after the Arab Spring to Europe, where they're creating this amazing music with European musicians and this fusion. And it's it really humanizes people in a way and breaks down the language barrier in a way that few other outlets could really do. But it does seem to me that there's an awareness of American music that in many ways has gotten ahead of the purpose of these programs. I think there's certainly a utility in having sponsoring concerts because then embassies and consulates can bring in contacts and give them perks as a way to engage broadly with a host population. But I'm not sure there are a lot of people who aren't aware of the contours of American music, who aren't aware of many more artists than the people who are planning the concert tours for American musicians abroad. Sometimes it's interesting because you'll have connections between the American musicians in a host country that might not even be aware that, for example, if you have musicians from Acadia in, in Louisiana, they can go back to France and they're singing in French and that might be interesting for a French audience. But I think for the most part, the idea of music as an ambassador, th the fact is that music serves as that purpose, whether the government wants it to or not, whoever people want to listen to and not who government planners want to support, the music's there, people are aware of it. And to some degree, it inspires people. To some degree, people enjoy listening to it. And, and to some degree, it's offensive. And all those things happen. There's not much the U.S. government can do one way or the other about it. It just exists because we live in a global music culture where, for better or worse, American music trends are the most dominant ones in the world. Yeah, Danny talked a lot about modern artists who can gain access to genres that aren't native to their home country, but then take those genres and make it their own. John, you were referred to it as hybridity. How do you think this phenomenon will affect the collective identity of Arabs in the region? I mean, it's interesting cosmopolitanness that I think many Arabs have, partly because they're increasingly traveling within the region for work, partly because you have a number of Arabs who either live and work in Europe, in the United States. There's more travel back and forth. There's more sharing of music and information. I think in many ways, to be an Arab today is to be profoundly cosmopolitan for an increasingly large number of Arabs, either cosmopolitan in an Arab sense within an Arabic speaking world, 
with the rise of regional media, regional television, regional music, or cosmopolitan and global sense of being open to the world. Uh, something about Arab nationalism 75 years ago was a little bit rigid and state-driven. It feels to me that for many Arabs, the nature of culture and language and news and information is broadening both within a, an Arab context and a global context. That means to be Arab in many ways is to embrace this hybrid identity. Certainly in North Africa, there's the French identity and French language, but I think it's true around the region that there's just a greater cosmopolitanism. And music is an important part of that. It's not just Um Kulthum and, and Abdul Khalim Hafiz. Yeah, I think that there is a sort of a slower movement amongst the wider population to accept musicians beyond Feruz, beyond the, the sort of typical famous musicians. But what's interesting is what's going on in the opposite direction for me in terms of that hybrid nature of music where you see musicians like John mentioned Paul Simon, but David Byrne, you would put in this category as well, where they've gone to other regions and then made that style of music world famous. I think most recently, one of my favorite examples is Bjork, the Icelandic musician, basically making a wedding singer from the region incredibly famous by interspersing his lyrics into one of her own songs. And, you know, this speaks a bit to what Danny said towards the end, which is this is the next level making Arabic music like K-pop, getting it to a world audience. So going in the in the sort of opposite direction. And I think we are seeing that a lot more where I see Arab musicians at South by Southwest and they're just a musician. They might have some Arabic lyrics in there or some riffs of Arabic music in their songs, but they are being listened to by the masses now. And so I think that that's a pretty exciting space for Arabic music and I think music more broadly because we'll really start to sort of see that in the mainstream. And when you see it in the mainstream in the United States, then it is it becomes international. And I think we're starting to see that more than ever before. Well, thank you for joining me, John and Natasha. Thanks, Leah. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.